Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me today, as always, not a surprise guest this time, he's always here, Luke Boggs. I've always been here. You're always here. Yep. We, we love it that way. On today's show, we have Christmas in July, which is a new batch of AJC polling that came out today, polling from the AJC and our beloved University of Georgia, SPIA there at UGA. They put out polling today to give us the latest sense of what is happening in the Senate race, the governor's race, the lieutenant governor's race, and the secretary of state's race, along with yet another batch of just horrible approval ratings for Joe Biden in Georgia. So we're going to talk about what this poll tells us about where these races stand as we head into the fall and how it starts to solidify, I think, the possibility that a true split ticket scenario is happening among voters here in Georgia. Then we're going to talk about the latest out of the investigation in Fulton County into the efforts by some Republicans who participated in the fake elector scheme to try to secure the presidential election in Georgia for Donald Trump. We're going to talk about the latest developments in that case, including a pretty big win for State Senator Burt Jones, who is the Republican candidate for lieutenant governor. He is not going to be subject to investigation directly by uh, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis, who uh, was pulled off of the investigation of Burt Jones specifically in part because she uh, hosted a fundraiser for Charlie Bailey, the Democratic candidate for lieutenant governor during his primary race. So we're going to talk about what that means for that case and and what that case generally can tell us about uh, Republican efforts to overturn the election in 2020. And then we'll close out today with discussion of, of another big issue in Georgia politics lately, and that is the implementation of the heartbeat ban, abortion ban bill. Uh, it has now gone into effect in Georgia. I actually think this is the first time we've recorded since the Dobbs decision was released, but as I think everyone is well aware, earlier this summer, the Supreme Court finalized their ruling overturning Roe v. Wade and returning abortion regulation to the states and Georgia's abortion ban that bans abortion when fetal cardiac activity is detected has now gone into effect, but it is now, while it is it is not being challenged anymore at the federal level, in federal courts, it is being challenged in state courts. So we'll talk about the prospects of that and some confusing questions that remain about how that law is being implemented. But Luke, let's let's start with the polling here. The headline result from the AJC, I think the main takeaway that everybody has had is that this polling kind of demonstrates the split ticket uh, voting scenario that we're likely to see in this state in November because Governor Kemp has a relatively comfortable lead over Stacey Abrams in the poll he leads. In the poll, Kemp garners 48% of the vote, Abrams garners 43% of the vote, and 7% of voters in the governor's race are undecided. While in the Senate race, Raphael Warnock, the incumbent, has a slight lead over Herschel Walker. He gets 46% of support from voters in that poll. Herschel is at 43, and 8% of voters are still undecided in that race. What was your takeaway seeing this result in the in the difference in strength between Kemp leading for Republicans in the governor's race, but Warnock still in a pretty solid position for Democrats in the Senate race? To me, this is a sign that uh, Herschel Walker cannot defy gravity like <clears throat> Donald Trump can, and that 
all of the negative stories that have come out about him have caught up to him. And I think the deficit of candidate quality uh, of Herschel Walker starting to lead to a deficit in his polling results. Yeah, I I think there's some question of, you know, the overall political environment for Democrats in Georgia still continues to look pretty negative. And Joe Biden's approval ratings in the state are in the 30s. Um, Which, you know, just to stop you there, I mean, I think Abrams and uh, Raphael Warnock should feel pretty great that they're in the 40s. If Biden's all the way down the 30s, the fact that they're outpacing him by over 10 points, it's, it's pretty good in my mind. How stable do you think these results are? I mean, are we looking at something potentially really close to the final results of these races, or is there a lot that you feel like could change between now and November? It's still early, but I think the dynamic of there being a gap between how well Warnock is doing and how well Abrams is doing, I think that is going to be consistent. And the reason why I say that is Raphael Warnock consistently has done a little bit better than other Democrats around him. He did better than Ossoff. He did better than the public service commissioner uh, candidate. And he's, he's been very popular, um, you know, unpopular time for Democrats. And so I think the, the thing we can expect is that Warnock will do better than Abrams. The question I think is, will he continue to do better than Walker And I think the way that that will be determined is just exactly what do the independent voters do? What do the currently undecided voters do? And the, you know, the, what do the voters that are currently camped in the libertarian column do? Because there is a dynamic in Georgia and a history in Georgia of people who say I'm undecided or I'm independent or I'm voting for the Libertarian, eventually just throw up their hands and say, screw it, I'm going to vote for the Republican. Uh, Because a lot of these folks are center-right people who, you know, tell everyone they vote for the person, not the party, and they want to look at all this stuff. But at the end of the day, like, they lean Republican, and so they end up just coming home. And, you know, this time might be different just because the fact, as we've discussed previously, Walker is really a uniquely bad candidate and Warnock is a uniquely strong candidate. So maybe some of those folks will skip the Senate race and vote Republican the rest of the way down. Maybe they'll even vote for uh, Warnock um, and vote Republican the rest of the way down. But I, I, I think there are some people who are voting for who are very comfortable with the idea of voting for Warnock and Kemp. And that's popped up not only in this poll, but a couple polls now. And so I think that is a dynamic that's going to start strengthening itself the more it gets talked about because uh, voters want a permission structure. They want, they want, you know, they want to feel like they can still be a good Republican and not vote for Walker if someone gives them that out. And so if they start reading more and more stories about people voting for Warnock and Republicans the rest of the rest of the way down, I feel like more and more voters will do that. Or if you know people skip it, I feel like more will do that if they hear about it more. And it takes time, but lucky for you know uh, Reverend Warnock, we we have some time. It's it's July, and so there's a couple months still. And really, for 
dynamics like this to be successful, having them start in the summer is a pretty good time for that to, to start because it gives it enough time to percolate, but not so much time that it fizzles out. Is there anything in this poll or any of the other reporting you've seen or, or since that you've gotten that could help explain Reverend Warnock's strength as a candidate? Obviously, he brings some incumbency advantage. Um, but I, you know, we, we've come back to this dynamic before where Democrats in Georgia in the past have struggled when they have tried to separate themselves from a Democratic president. And yet you've seen Warnock in a few recent specific instances, separating himself from Joe Biden. Uh, he got asked by AJC reporters in, a, in an event in the last week or so what he thought of Joe Biden's job performance, and he basically dodged the question. And then there's sort of the classic and I think very easy uh, place for a Georgia Democrat to separate themselves from a Democratic president, and that was him standing up against the closure of military bases, military facilities in this state. But he's also, you know, been willing to say, I've demanded Joe Biden do things on like lifting the federal gas tax and trying to lower gas prices for Georgians. And some of his sort of like independence and sort of like policy focused uh, approach in, in image is around lowering costs on both lowering gas prices and lowering the cost of insulin for people specifically in legislation that he's pushed and, and hearings that he's had. So that's sort of like the policy bucket and the sort of stand aside from Joe Biden bucket that he has sort of framed himself around politically over the last few months. There's also the fact that he just comes off as a very congenial, likable, sort of trustworthy kind of person that stands in very stark contrast to the kind of person that Herschel Walker has shown himself to be and, and has been extensively documented through the reporting that we've talked about before. Do you think any one of those factors stands out more? And if you're, if you're Herschel Walker's campaign and you're looking at trying to tie Reverend Warnock to Joe Biden or trying to make Reverend Warnock unlikable, like, is there a path there? I think Walker is trying to do what you're laying out there in just constantly harping on, boy, aren't the Democrats out of touch and things are bad and, you know, get me in there and I'll do all the things that Donald Trump would have me do, which would make you happy and me happy because things are so bad and things were great previously and we'll make them great again vibes. And I think... One place I'll fight you on this, on how you characterized what Warnock is doing, I think highlights the difficulty of that task for Walker, because unlike, you know, who we love to mention, Jason Carter and Michelle Nunn, Warnock isn't really running away from Biden as much as he's like, do more Joe Biden. And I feel like that is a very different vibe because Jason Carter and Michelle Nunn were very much like, I'm not like those Democrats. I'm a Georgia Democrat. And I have these very unique and special beliefs that, you know, are so similar to Republicans, but just a little bit different and a little bit nicer. Whereas Warnock isn't really running away from the national brand. He's more saying... Hey, look at all these problems. I have all these solutions to these problems. Wouldn't it be great if Joe Biden did these things I would like him to do for us? And that's not necessarily, in my mind, a like 
separating myself from Joe Biden. Like if if Joe Biden got on a plane and landed in in Georgia, like Warnock would probably be there and say hello and you know like be there to greet him whereas i don't think jason carter and michelle nunn did that when obama came i think he came in 2014 but he, even if he didn't had he come i don't think he would have they would i think have it was him. the show up for a fundraiser and ajc's like are they at the airport to greet him R- i think it was that kind of thing yeah not so much doing an event or anything like that right and so we mattered less back then we did but but my, my point is, I don't feel like he's running away from Joe Biden as much as he's trying to push Joe Biden, mm. which I think is really different. That's and, a good distinction. And I think that makes it harder for Walker because Walker can't be like, oh, look at this hypocrite Raphael Warnock trying to pretend that he's not a Democrat. He's really just saying that he is a Democrat and so you shouldn't like him. And I think that's harder for him to sell because one, generally speaking, Warnock is a lot more likable than Walker. And then two, because Warnock has not put him in the position to be set up as a hypocrite, you know, he he's a lot, it's a lot harder to attack him on these topics because Warnock has been really smart in emphasizing in his advertising and his public statements the issues that are hurting Georgians the most. And so Warnock has credibility to say, I'm trying to fix these issues. It's not my fault. I can't unilaterally move the entire federal government. And Walker is not presenting you with any actual real ways to fix this besides firing me. And I'm not the problem. Look at all my great ideas. And I, I, I think that, that that dynamic is is a lot harder for a non-super-skilled candidate and communicator to take advantage of when he's starting to get behind. Let's move here to, to Abrams and the, the task before her. So when you look at this poll result for Brian Kemp, his lead, I believe, is outside the margin of error. He's up by five, and there's some particular warning signs for Abrams' campaign, in particular that her uh, support among black voters in Georgia seems to be a little softer than it has been traditionally for Georgia Democrats. So according to AJC reporting in the jolt today, Georgia Democrats typically get about 90% of the black electorate in this state and, and Republicans are thrilled if they can get into double digits with black voters. But Abrams is only getting roughly about 80% of support from black voters in the AJC SPIA poll. And Kemp is at 10%, but 8% of those black voters are undecided in this race. What is your takeaway about that particular finding? And if Abrams is in a position where she is needing to build up enthusiasm for her among her base of voters, is she in a lot of trouble in this race? Well, she's in a lot of trouble, been in a lot of trouble. So yeah, I'd say so. And I think the Warnock dynamic helps illustrate where I think Abrams is having trouble, which is Warnock can look like and be doing things to actually affect the environment. And even if he's not successful, he can be caught trying. Whereas Abrams cannot change anything in the dynamic now because she is not an incumbent. And so I think that is a under discussed strength in both Warnock and Kemp 
and all the rest of the Republicans on the ballot is the fact that they're uh, are they are incumbents, and well, most of them. Burt Jones isn't, but we'll get there. Um, so as incumbents, you can just be caught trying and caught doing caught doing things and announcing things and changing things, and you just can't do that as a challenger. And I think also one of the biggest failings of Abrams' campaigns so far is, as we've discussed and I've harped on, it really just feels like she's running 2018 again. And I don't feel like there's any lessons learned from the four years in between her two races. And it just, to me, she's talking about things that unquestionably are important to the future of Georgia, unquestionably should be done. But in Warnock is very focused on what is happening right now. What is been the pro? What have been the problems in Georgians' lives for the past six months, and how can I fix those problems in the next six months? Whereas Abrams is talking about things that are a lot more universal, or, or at least what breaks through to me are the things where she's talking about a lot more universal problems. And I think the other thing that she's had a lot of trouble doing in this environment where there is so much chaos, where it feels like everything's going wrong all the time, she's been very, very focused on building herself up and making herself look better, which is great. You should do that as a candidate. But she has not done a convincing job of telling people to fire Kemp, I think. Because she has... I I think this is a mistake a lot of candidates make when they're running against incumbents is it's not about ma- it's not just about making yourself look better it is convincing the electorate to fire your opponent that and that should in my opinion be easier because we have a very we have we had three very successful fire these people campaigns <laughs> just 2 years ago because Biden winging was a fire trump and Ossoff winging was a fire Purdue and Warnock winging was a fire, you know, um, Kelly Loeffler. And so Abrams has good examples to point to and she's a great messenger. And so she could do this message if she wanted to. I don't know why she hasn't gone into that route because I think she's falling into the mistakes so many challengers fall into, which is the comparison race versus a referendum race and to walker's credit this is the one thing that he's doing well is he's very focused on fire warnock and his argument for firing warnock is he does not vote for the supreme court justices we want he does he's not doing anything about inflation he's he on the with he's biden 96 percent of the time right he's on the wrong team and so we need to fire him so because i will vote for the right team and Abrams just hasn't, I, I mean, if she's doing it again, it's not the messaging that's breaking through to me. I don't see her telling me why we need to fire Brian Kemp. And I, I think that might be a, a trap from the fact that she ran against him last time. And she's still in that comparison mindset, which is a lot more important when you're running for an open seat. But it's like people have a record with Brian Kemp more Georgians in you know the state voted for him than her last time. And so you have to convince at least some of those voters they were wrong to be successful. And that's really, really hard to do, especially in an environment where you're a member of the party that controls everything on the federal level and federally everything's going really bad. 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's a limiting problem for Abrams because I've been a little bit frustrated at some of the ways in which Republicans really like Republican campaign staffers, Republican people on Twitter have taken have basically I think been successful in arguing that everything that is happening that is good is because we have Republican governors in Georgia. And this was particularly highlighted in a bunch of Southeastern states when Biden tweeted out that uh, gas prices were pretty low and, and declining pretty quickly in states in the Southeast. All these Republicans picked it up and said, well, you know, what do all these states have in common? They have Republican governors, but Southern states, in particular Georgia, are also some of the places that have experienced the highest rates of inflation. And Republicans will throw up their hands and say, well, that's Joe Biden's fault. Like, it doesn't matter that there are Republican governors in Georgia, but Georgia has one of the highest inflation rates in the nation. That's Joe Biden's fault. And they've been, I think, effective in putting everything bad on the Democrats, everything good on the Republicans. And I you know, Republicans can't have it both ways, basically. But Democrats have to prosecute that point in their campaigns. And that, I think, is the message that's not breaking through. But the one place I think that there maybe is an opportunity for Stacey Abrams is to try to shift the focus away from the economy and on to the issue of abortion. Uh, because Brian Kemp did say that he was overjoyed that Georgia's abortion ban was allowed to go into effect by the courts. We are overjoyed that the court has paved the way for the implementation of Georgia's Life Act. And as mothers navigate pregnancy, birth, parenthood, or alternative options to parenthood, like adoption, Georgia's public, private, and nonprofit sectors stand ready to provide the resources they need to be safe, healthy, and informed. Um, and it is one issue where it is very clear that Democrats have a very strong and clear message that they are not responsible for these abortion bans. They do not support them. And to the extent that people's liberties and lives are taken away by these abortion bans, Democrats are in no way to blame for that because they never wanted these bills to be in place. And Republicans are jubilant that they're law now. But like, you know, how how effective is that in the context of people being more focused on the economy typically and and channeling their frustrations through their votes about their frustration on the economy. Like, is that a real opportunity there for Abrams, you think, to reframe this race? Or is that, yeah, of course, Democrats are against abortion, but I'm pissed about the economy, so I'm going to vote for Republicans. I think the issue has been anecdotally, and you can infer in polling and just history of election results, is that the pro-choice position in an otherwise conservative voter has not historically been a differentiator in their behavior, their voting behavior. Because obviously, if you're a Democrat, Abrams' position on abortion is not going to change your mind and make you vote for a Democrat. You're already voting for Democrats. So really, the only people who are going to change their voting behavior based off of that successful appeal are people who might have sat out but would vote for Democrats if they do show up, or some of those independent center-right voters who really think this is an important issue and are very angry about how 
it's been handled and how uh, the you know abortion rights have been taken away uh, from over half the population of the country. And I think that, unfortunately, is not the top-of-mind voting issue for a lot of voters. And I think it's just, it's a terrible thing because there's so much pain and so much harm that's going to come because of that. But it is a fact that for most people, this is not an everyday thought. Most people see the economic hardship, they see the gas prices, they see inflation, they feel inflation every day. Whereas, undeniably, the, you know, taking away, the clawing away of women's rights is a deeper hurt that cuts deeper. It just isn't as common of a scenario. And I think that is, you know, influencing people's priority on voting on that issue. And I think it's, a, it's, a, it's unfortunately going to take time for just how outrageous and backward looking Kemp's position and policy on this is, uh, which we're, you know, I know we're going to talk about a little bit later, but I, I, I think it's an opportunity, but resting on it solely is not going to be enough to change the dynamic. Well, and, and I also wonder to the extent that Abrams soft support among black voters is among black men, you know, it's, it's possible. I don't, I don't know that the poll tells the story exactly, but I think it's something to watch. It's possible that some of these black men or older black men from more rural parts of the state who may have more socially conservative views. Um, that would be my assumption. And, and again, anecdotally, that is the place where Republicans have claimed to be picking up voters in rural Southwest Georgia, the, you know, the black farmers kind of dialogue that we've discussed before. And and to the extent then that Abrams really tries to center abortion rights in her campaign, it could undermine her ability to turn those voters out in her, on her side. And the the hope I think for, for Democrats is that a, a more diverse uh, group and probably including more white voters in, in the suburbs of Atlanta who, maybe previously voted Republican, voted for Joe Biden, and may be open to voting for Stacey Abrams and may be very alarmed by the implications of the abortion ban for women in their lives, for their their children, for, for people that they love, that the number of people who will be activated by that and be willing to turn out for Democrats would be greater than the number of maybe more socially conservative, older black male voters in more rural parts of the state who may be honestly a little turned off by Abrams focus on the issue. So I, I think that that is one dynamic to kind of, to kind of watch out for. Uh, the other, I think really notable figure out of this poll is in the secretary of state's race a year ago, Brad Raffensperger, the, the likelihood that he could have won reelection, the likelihood that he could have even made it out of a Republican primary looked slim to none. But he did make it out of the Republican primary, and he did get featured by Democrats in Congress in some of their testimony in the January 6th committee hearings about his efforts to beat back election misinformation and ensure that the vote was certified properly in favor of Joe Biden. Uh, Raffensperger leads 
State Representative B. Wynn, the Democrat in that race, he leads her 46 to 32. And that figure in the AJC poll shows that six, 16% of Democrats are lending their support to Brad Raffensperger. Is that race over? <laughs> is there- no, it's, it's, it's too early to say it's over, but I think this dynamic is evidence that we finally have of something I suspected, which was a lot of Democrats are going to give Brad Raffensperger credit for standing up to Trump. And I think this is highlighting the exact same problem that Abrams has, is that B. Wing, as much as I like her, as much as I'm going to vote for her, she has not broken through a message of, we need to fire Brad Raffensperger because of X. And when someone has gotten as much free press and as much, again, to be fair, deserved um, you know, um, I've lost the word because my brain's dead today. Um, well, praise. praise. You got a lot yeah. of praise yeah. from congressional Democrats. Yeah, and for someone who's gotten as much praise from congressional Democrats and Democrats nationally, it's difficult to successfully prosecute that case unless you go right at it. People are not going to make a comparison look at B. Win and pick her, unfortunately, because of the fact it would be taking a chance on a Democratic candidate who a lot of people haven't heard of. You and I know B. Wynn, uh, we've heard about her, we've watched her, you know, rise through the ranks of the uh, Democratic Party, and we're impressed with her, but like most people don't know any of that stuff. And so while we think she's more qualified and know she's more qualified and would do a better job than Raffensperger, she has to prove that, and and unfortunately, a lot of way times, the best way to do that in a race is by convincing voters they need to fire a person. And I just don't think anyone on the Democratic side is doing a great job of that right now. I think that this demonstrates that the Democratic message against Senate Bill 202 and broader efforts by Republicans that are embraced by a wider swath of the Republican Party to make it more difficult to vote and to make it more difficult for your vote to be representative in the results of an election through gerrymandering, through limiting access to absentee ballots, to limiting access to ballot drop boxes, um, the, the policies that did make it into law into the wider uh, support for even more aggressive steps to limit voting and including some of the things that ultimately did not make it into Senate bill 202, but I think animate a lot of Republicans views on this issue, like limiting Sunday voting um, that Democrats argument that those are also part and parcel of the broader Republican effort uh, to le- delegitimize elections, that that argument's fallen flat. And that a lot of the sort of people's opposition to and concern about election misinformation and making it harder to vote, that a lot of that stuff is actually just bottled up in Donald Trump and the efforts of him and his allies in the 2020 election. And I think they feel that if Donald Trump is dispatched with, if the January 6th committee uncovers all these bad actors around Donald Trump and focuses on Donald Trump and we get Donald Trump out of office and we don't vote for Donald Trump Republicans, uh, 
that then that problem is dealt with and it's done and we don't have to worry about it. And I, you Democrats want to connect these two things. And I think it's legitimate too. I think it's all part of a broader effort, but I don't think that that case has been persuasive for voters. And in particular, you know, I think that that would have been the avenue to, to tie Brad Raffensperger to these broader Republican efforts. I think that that had the potential to be successful. I don't think it it, did, but, (laughs) but it, it hasn't broken through. And it's, it's clear from this poll that, um, at least to date, you know, Brad Raffensperger looks great. Um, and if we dispatch with Donald Trump, we dispatch with the problem. I think the only other thing that this brings to mind to me is I think Georgia's Democrats are suffering from a little bit of a federal echo chamber problem, because if you asked anyone that went to any of Abrams book tour events all over the country, I'm sure every one of them would have thought that she would have been the next governor of Georgia easily. And that, you know, no way that she isn't going to be able to beat Brian Kemp. But I just think this is very emblematic of the importance of diving into creating a very specific message against the people you're running against and not higging on the high level contrast stuff. I mean, if you're running against incumbents, you have to convince people to fire them. And I don't, I don't feel Brian Kemp in Abrams campaign. I don't feel Brad Raffensperger in B wins campaign. I feel like the three Democrats that were successful in, you know, Joe Biden, John Ossoff, and Raphael Warnock, their incumbents that they fired were very much a big part of their campaign and what they were going to do differently and where they stood on the most important issues of the day. And I I really haven't seen any Democrat running do a, a really good job of focusing in on that. Um, and I, and I, 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 it's just, it's frustrating to me because that seems like such an obvious thing to do. Uh, some people call that negative campaigning and I think it, it, it can be negative, but it doesn't have to be. It can, it can be a specific to Brian Kemp contrasting, showing you how they failed at how he failed at doing his job and not just being, you know, like dirty laundry politics. It can, it can be substantive and it should be substantive because that stuff is more effective in my mind. Um, but they, it, it's just not very specific. Like Abram, this campaign Abrams is running could be in, against Nathan Deal or Sonny Perdue. And I, I think that just isn't effective. You have to actually find things about your opponent that you think you would do better and highlight and contrast your, your differences and convince people that that person should be fired. And now the Democrats are doing that. I don't think. Let's move on here and talk about the latest out of the investigation in Fulton County into um, actions surrounding the effort to overturn the 2020 election results in Georgia. The headline that people probably saw about this this week was that uh, the district attorney in Fulton County, Fannie Willis, who is leading this special grand jury, um, she is no longer allowed to handle this investigation specifically into State Senator Burt Jones, who is a who is the Republican nominee for lieutenant governor. 
And he is one of 16 people who participated in a scheme to send a slate of fake electors to Congress when Congress was considering the uh, certification of the 2020 electoral vote of the 2020 election. Uh, Those 16 electors from Georgia, along with efforts in other states to send fake electors from other states where the results were close. This is an investigation that started primarily uh, into the call that President Trump made to Brad Raffensperger, the famous one that we all know about, where Trump begged Brad Raffensperger to find him the 11,000, 12,000, whatever votes that he needed to overturn the result in Georgia. But that inquiry has uh, expanded, I think, pretty significantly. And in this particular issue of this fake electors, seems to be one of the one of the primary focuses of the investigation right now. Luke, could you just kind of outline for people sort of what is being investigated as it relates to the fake electors and kind of what crimes could potentially be at issue here in this investigation as it pertains to these people? So I think the most important thing to to talk about here rather than me reading the Georgia code to everyone and telling you like what every crime these folks might have committed is just to point out the fact that in Georgia, there are lots of statutes prosecuting folks for election fraud, trying to make someone commit election fraud, having a conspiracy to do election fraud. And so there's, Lots of crimes they theoretically could have committed, uh, depending on what they thought they were doing and, you know, how much knowledge they had of the greater scheme that John Eastman had come up with, which was, you know, the, the White House lawyer that, you know, facilitated, who masterminded this scheme. And so I, I think it's going to be very important for them to get to the bottom of just exactly what these fake electors knew, what they thought they were doing, and how much information they had about the overall scheme, because that will make the case a lot stronger. Because from what I have seen, I think the actual creation of the fake election uh, elector ballot or you know list slates yeah well the create yeah the creation of the fake slate and that slate then subsequently making you know a, a decision on who they voted for in the electoral college i think participating and helping make that document itself is probably a crime but they're gonna try to weasel out of it and say oh my lawyer said it was fine we were trying to preserve it you know preserve this for the the feds to work out you know like there's gonna, there's gonna be ways for them if they didn't know anything else and if it was you know your Republican friend calls you up and says, Hey, will you sign this document in this room next to, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, like that, that seems a lot less bad, but still could be criminal. Whereas if there is a clear acknowledgement on their part that they're doing this in a way to help facilitate this illegitimate slate of electors of getting picked as the real one, I think they're in a lot more trouble if, yeah. So, I, you know, one of the defenses that I've seen from some Republicans that would argue that 
not only, and we'll come back to the optics about Fonnie Willis's fundraiser for Charlie Bailey and, uh, you know, Charlie being Bailey being the opponent to Burt Jones. One of the defenses I've heard is that these people were told that they needed to take this action to form this alternate slate of electors to preserve Trump's legal rights. If a federal court determined that there was substantive election fraud in Georgia and that there was enough of it to overturn the results of the election. So that sort of from a technical functional standpoint, there would have been a slate of electors that voted for the Republican candidate by the constitutionally mandated deadline in early December, which, you know, on that particular day that the fake election slate was brought together, Democrats in the state legislature cast the real election, the real slate of electors to Congress um, based on the election results that Joe Biden won the state. And so Republicans would say that this is an abuse of prosecutorial discretion and abuse of the power on the on the part of the prosecutor to potentially prosecute these people criminally when they were told that they were just preserving some legal options and they weren't gathering to do something that they knew to be illegal. But it, it's become clear in, in reporting and the most recent of which is from the New York times that the purpose of this scheme was not to preserve President Trump's legal options if a federal court found election fraud. And yet again, we'll note no election fraud was found. All of the president's legal claims were dismissed. The ones that were properly filed in courts were dismissed. And, you know, no substantive, no evidence of substantial election fraud exists. And so then the purpose of doing this fake elector scheme was not to wait on the courts and be there if the courts came to your rescue. It was to have an alternate slate of electors before the Congress on certification day on January 6th, so that then Republicans in Congress could cite what they believed to be election fraud that was baseless and without evidence and say, we should reject these Democratic elector votes in Georgia and six of these other competitive states. And we should pick the Republicans instead and picking the Republicans instead would hand the election to Trump. And, and this process, doing so without any evidence of voter fraud, without any backing from the courts, that that process itself would be illegal. It would effectively be stealing the election on behalf of Trump. And so that's where I think the part that you raised, Luke, about what did these fake electors know and when did they know it uh, is what comes in. Because like, do these people know that they are participating in this scheme? It was clear from this reporting that lawyers close to Trump in the White House, I don't think it's the official White House counsel, but it's like lawyers that were friends with Trump and working on his behalf, they knew that this was legally dubious. And they knew that this was the purpose of organizing all these fake electors, according to this reporting from the New York Times. And so that I think is sort of the outline of the question that is being investigated here in Fulton County. Um, I think that the bigger question I have to you, Luke, and, and this is sort of like a somewhat legal, somewhat ethical question, and you can, you're the lawyer here, you can correct me on all of the law related things. But I think what Republicans are trying to say is this was not a successful effort. And so it's an abuse of power to prosecute these people. But people who participated in this 
were a part of the sort of larger scheme to delegitimize the outcome of the election. And so is it sort of fair in an ethical sense to catch these people on maybe the technical crimes of forging that document? Is it, is it good to get them on sort of like the narrower technical places where they might have violated a smaller statute, even though their ultimate effort to overturn the result of the election was not successful. So yes, you know, there, this is why there's, you know, attempted, you know, robbery is a crime, you know, the, the attempting to do a crime is usually a crime. Uh, and, and so, you know, conspiracy is, is just to conspiracy is just to have an agreement to do illegal things by illegal means in Georgia. And so that is pretty broad. You know, I, I know there's a specific statute on, election fraud i haven't reviewed it closely lately but yeah i i imagine just the fact that they were unsuccessful should not ethically or legally get them out of it i think they're since this is something a lot more technical i i i think how much they knew is going to be really important not just for like the legal question of can they be prosecuted or even the ethical question of if they should but just like how how strong of a case are you going to have because you know nobody needs to ask their lawyer hey is it legal if i rob a bank like everyone understands you can't do that um but if it's something you know like this where you have a lawyer telling you hey this is you know something we need to do to preserve a legal option and that's all you knew like that's a much harder case even if you the underlying conduct that the person agreed to do was illegal. I mean, that's just going to be difficult to get a jury to convict people on, even if it is technically a crime. I think Fannie Willis's responsibility is very simple here, though. It is to look at the conduct these people did, rigorously analyze it, and if a crime was committed, then to bring charges. And that, that I think, is what her focus has been, and with the exception of the uh, disqualification situation with uh, Burt Jones, I think has you know she's she's been very successful on that, and and just just to point out what I think about that because I think it goes into what you're asking, I think the judge did not need to disqualify Fannie Willis in this situation, but I think that that decision makes sense considering how politically sensitive all of this is. And I think that he's probably ultimately doing the investigation a favor because there will be a lot less credibility to claims that this is just a political witch hunt and she's trying to go after a statewide Republican candidate who she explicitly doesn't want to win because she hosted a fundraiser for um, his opponent. And so I, I think the case against Burt Jones will make itself, if there is something there, then the pressure to also bring charges against him from a different DA will be really, really hard to ignore because if this does lead to criminal charges, her investigation will ultimately reveal a lot of facts and probably the indictments will include his name, though as an uncharged, you know, co-conspirator or, or, or something. Like, I, I, I don't think 
and I, I haven't had a chance to actually like read the order thoroughly, but I would think this would not prevent her if she did eventually bring charges in the narrative of the events from mentioning his name uh, it, it, as one of the 12 electors and mentioning that he was involved in the same conduct. It's just she would not have the ability to charge him uh, because of the disqualification. That You mentioned the alternate prosecutor. So the because of the ruling, an alternate prosecutor related specifically to Burr Jones is going to be appointed by the Prosecuting Attorneys Council of Georgia. And they're quoted in an article from Tamar Hallerman in the AJC I believe it's like the chairman or spokesperson or something for that group saying basically that they're not in a hurry to appoint another prosecutor to deal with Burt Jones specifically. How meaningful do you think that is? I, I think in all honesty, this is probably them just wanting to coast off of DA Willis's investigation. And if you find something, they will appoint someone serious to look into it and to follow up on it. But I, I, I think Every DA in Georgia is incredibly busy. There's such a terrible backlog from COVID. Uh, DA Willis's office, I've seen a couple times on the news, it's just lined with bankers' boxes of all the backup cases they have. Uh, so I think realistically, they're probably not wanting to put this on anyone <laughs> until they have to. Because, again, all of this could end up with her saying, I've looked at it, I don't think there's any crimes here, we're moving on. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen, but it is possible. And so if I am, you know, that council having to think about a really unpopular, you know, hot potato you have to handle hand to somebody that no matter what you do, you'll be criticized. Because if you give it to a Democrat DA, they're going to say you're throwing Burt Jones under the bus and this is a political witch hunt. If you give it to a Republican, the Democrats are going to say that you're trying to quash the investigation and you're not taking this seriously, blah, blah, blah. So like there, it's a no win scenario for them. So I don't really blame them for like waiting a little while and just seeing what happens with this, because there's absolutely nothing that stops them from appointing someone the day after DA Willis indicts the other 11 people. Let's wrap here. And you mentioned how, uh, busy some of those district attorneys are. The judge in that case is also very busy. Uh, the one, the same judge, Judge McBurney, who made the ruling uh, on that uh, motion related to Burt Jones, he is also going to be the judge who hears the state challenge to the Georgia's uh, heartbeat bill abortion ban that is now in effect. Um, I think I think there's two things to know about the state of the abortion ban right now. One is that there are a lot of questions about the true application of the law. And Patricia Murphy from the AJC, she wrote an excellent column that we'll link to in show notes that raises a lot of these specific questions. I think what was most illuminating to me was as a part of this somewhat muted reaction from Republicans that this big uh, policy goal that they've sought for a long time is now at hand. Many of those same Republicans who supported this legislation did not really want to engage on the specifics of what that law going into effect would mean for people in Georgia. And so there's questions about, you know, the, the, the process for filing police reports and whether or not, for instance, someone who is a, uh, you know, a, a minor who's a victim of incest 
would actually be able to find a police department that might believe them enough to allow them to file a police report that would facilitate them getting an abortion if they have a pregnancy as a result of incest. Um, And that police report is a particular uh, requirement under the abortion bill to have that exception actually be relevant for people. There's also the implication of the personhood language uh, as it relates to what the Georgia Department of Revenue is going to do uh, in terms of getting people the sort of tax benefits that come with the personhood language and, and whether or not the state is actually ready to implement those things. So, so the implications here range from, I think, severe and very important to the specific lives of people who are going to be impacted on this bill, all the way to some of the technical questions that state agencies are going to have to answer. But I think it is both, it is remarkable that the state appears to be so unprepared to implement this legislation. Um, and what the fact that they are so unprepared to implement that legislation is going to mean for people who, you know, may have pregnancies that they want, but may have miscarriages or other complications to their pregnancies and may need medical services that are similar to abortion and whether or not they'll actually be able to access those services in Georgia, um, or whether or not healthcare providers will be afraid to provide those services. So, so that I think is the first thing to know. Luke, what do you think about sort of like where we are in that aspect of, of how uncertain this is going forward? I think this is emblematic that this bill existed for the sole point for Brian Kemp to be able to say, I signed one of the toughest abortion bans in the country because they did not, they either didn't expect or they didn't seriously reckon with the like policy comp consequences of this decision and this was a political bill signed for political reasons for a political outcome and they have now achieved that political outcome but they have to live with the policy consequences of that outcome and unfortunately i don't have a lot of faith in this administration's ability to reckon with those policy outcomes and consequences and to make a decision about them. And frankly, they're not going to, um, maybe we'll see the legislature clean it up, but really it's not Brian Kim's job at this point, his, his point, his moment where he could have influenced how much this makes sense or not was either signing or vetoing that bill. He decided to sign the bill and now I think he bears the political consequences of that decision and he deal he deals with the you know policy consequences are his fault but at the end of the day this is a law and that means that it's going to be up to well hold on let me back up unfortunately what's going to happen is there's going to be a lot of abortions, a lot of health care that is not going to be provided in Georgia, even though it's legal to it to be provided in Georgia. Because effectively, doctors, healthcare professionals, clinics are going to be very concerned about doing anything that's illegal, and they don't want to find out the hard way that they did something illegal. And so people are going to be more cautious, probably, 
the uncertainty will only be cleared up once a DA decides that they want to go after someone for something and it goes to court and there's an outcome. That's going, that's going to be how this uncertainty gets cleared up. Because even if Brian Kemp says, here is my 450-page document that outlines my perspective on this bill, or realistically who it would be, the Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr would do this because you, you know, the, the, this is, this is the only way the executive officer could really influence this is someone could and probably should ask Chris Carr, what are the lines on this law? Well, how are, how are these, how we answer these questions and they can put out an advisory opinion, but the key word in that is advisory opinion, uh, you know, or sorry, actually both of the words advisory and opinion, <laughs> you know, neither of them are, 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 are bound in law. And so it's going to be courts. It's going to be Georgia courts reading this bill and making decisions. And that's going to take a really long time to clear up anything. And even if, you know, six months from now, it wouldn't be that. I mean, even if, you know, two years from now, the Georgia Supreme court comes out with a 450 page opinion where they explain all this, Who's going to read that? <laughs> you know, like it's going to it, lawyers and not doctors. And I don't save anybody. <laughs> I just help people, uh, but I don't save any lives. And so uh, with that in mind, this uncertainty is not going away unless the legislature does what they're supposed to do and clean this crap up. And unfortunately, I don't think they're going to do that. I think I think they're going to just let this go hog wild because they they can point to someone else and blame them. Oh, it's that crazy DA down there. It's not my fault. Oh, it's the court being stupid. You know, it's like we in Georgia want to, you know, ban abortion and this is the best bill to do that. Yeah, that that's why I expect will happen unless the political outcry gets to a really, really fevered pitch and they start losing races because of this, which I don't think is going to happen this November because I just don't think there's enough time. Well, and even to the extent that there is political blowback, it'll be against the more moderate Republicans, the more competitive districts. And those Republicans would be the votes you would need to pass a cleanup bill. And those Republicans, if they are truly feeling political heat from this, are probably going to wish the bill never went into law. And so are they going to really be a vote to pass a cleanup bill? So yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I think that the uncertainty, I think puts a lot of people in harm's way but it will take a long time for that uncertainty to actually develop and actually provide the examples of cases where people's lives have been tremendously damaged or entirely ruined by this law. And I think the thing that is the most frustrating to me about the Republican reaction to this bill, particularly from the activists that are cheering the implementation of this bill. Yeah. The activists is, like governor Brian Kemp is that there is just no recognition that this bill is going to cause harm for people. They, they think that Georgia is just going to protect all these babies, save all these lives, and nobody is going to suffer any negative consequence for having their own rights over their own bodies taken away. And that I think is one of the things I find the most infuriating about all this. The other piece of sort of the uncertainty as it relates to this bill is it has been authorized to go into effect by the federal courts as a result of the Dobbs ruling. It is still able to be challenged in state court and uh, supporters of abortion access did file that challenge this week in state court. 
And there is some sense, and I've, I've read this most uh, prominently from Dr. Anthony Michael Christ, the constitutional law professor at Georgia State University, who's been quoted in uh, just about every news piece I've really seen on this issue, and really any other legal issue in Georgia in the last six months. Uh, there is some sense that there's a possibility that the text of the state constitution provides a much stronger privacy protection that would protect access to abortion in Georgia. And that should, if the language of that, that creates that uh, right in Georgia is honored, should result in this bill ultimately being found unconstitutional on state constitution grounds. Um, do you have any, this challenge was just filed this week. We'll have to see how it plays out in the courts and it, it could take quite a while, to, I guess, to, to run through the courts. But do you have any initial thoughts on what the state challenge to this law looks like and any, any ideas on, on prospects for success? It depends on how ideologically consistent the Georgia Supreme Court is. Uh, if they are ideologically consistent, I haven't had a chance to read this specific complaint. Um, but there are a couple different avenues that I could see being successful under Georgia jurisprudence. I am sure that they are going to find a way out of that. And, you know, I, I, I won't be surprised by that, but I, I think there are some very strong arguments in privacy and bodily autonomy and, you know, our libertarian approach to government in a lot of ways in Georgia that the Georgia Supreme Court could pick up on and run with if they wanted to. And I don't think there will be a lot of will for them to do that to go after you know the the chief political accomplishment of Brian Kemp on their side uh but we'll see I, I've been surprised by how they approach cases before um and li like I said there's lots of history in the Georgia Constitution that they could build off of that would point in the other direction not really because of a Abortion itself having some special protection, but it's more of just the uh, right to privacy and right to, you know, the, the prohibition on the government making you do things angle. And I, I think this is definitely a place that we should explore. And as this case develops, talk about war. Uh, but that's my first impressions on, on that. And I think it is unquestionably the right move to try to challenge this law in Georgia courts. And this is one place where I think the uncertainty could really work against the drafters of the bill. The fact that there are so many confusing elements to the bill that that could help because this is criminal law. This is criminal statutes and the criminal statutes has to be have to be strictly construed. And if the way they have drafted this makes that really, really hard to do that will be to the benefit of abortion providers and healthcare in Georgia. So uh, ho hopefully they take their responsibility seriously and try to put their own political beliefs out of the way and, and think about what the Georgia Constitution requires. Because I think if they do, this case has potential to 
uh, lead to a better outcome where Georgians' rights are acknowledged and not uh, withdrawn. So yeah, more to watch there. Obviously, this is going to play a big role in uh, state elections this year. And so there will be more to watch from that perspective as well. But we will leave it there for now. Luke, thank you as always for joining the podcast. Happy to be here as always. Alrighty, folks. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye, y'all. Bye. Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.